I'm in Belgrade, Serbia, the Hilton here. Nice. Been here since Saturday. Go to Croatia on Thursday, little Balkan tour. So what are you doing in Belgrade? Have you got family in Belgrade? Yes. My wife is a native Belgradian hanging out. So they don't put you up when you're there? Do you have to stay in a hotel? Yeah, we're staying in a hotel. That's by choice. If anyone is thinking about a vacation, I recommend Belgrade. Serbians are very hospitable people. It's a very interesting city. You go to a lot of cities in Europe these days, and it seems like there's more Americans than Italians in Rome or Portuguese in Lisbon. Belgrade is not that way. You get to see... It's like Italy. It's America's playground. You're elbow to elbow with Serbs, and it's good. I've enjoyed Do you find them tall? Are they very tall? They're massive. They're massive people. I am the size of a large child here, basically. Hmm. Well, you dress like one, so there you yeah, go. Yeah, so that's good. It's it's fitting. How's the food? Food's great. It's very meat heavy. If you don't like meat, I wouldn't come actually here at all. Have you ever had chivapi? No, what's that? They're the little like kebab sausages. I describe them as the buffalo wing of the Balkans. They have a lot of like barbecue places, like grill places. So it's grilled in like a charcoal grill and it soaks in the flavor. The Ottoman influence here is... Heavy. Is there a lot of evidence of American commercial imperialism? There's McDonald's, there's Starbucks. Like everywhere. Okay, just like paint a picture for us. You're sitting around the table and are they out of respect speaking English to include you? No. No, it's almost entirely Serbian. They'll like break into English. I don't know Serbian. I know words, I know phrases. I can sometimes pick up the main part of the conversation, but I couldn't possibly so you, like... What do you just sit there kind of sadly and get drunk? Or what, what do you do? <laughs> oh, I just hang out. I get included. I don't insist that they change just because I don't know Serbian. No, I get it. But did they demonstrate affection for you? Yeah, I'm a national hero here. I mean... <laughs> No, they don't got, I don't know. You'd have to ask them. Maybe they can come on the podcast later. Milan, Mira, if you're listening, you're welcome on the podcast. Dial I should have done when it. When Alex gets the dial-in functionality, we could have Yeah, we should. In. We should address why Alex isn't here. Because he said he was floating down a river or something like that. He's camping, which is super European. He likes that. He always, always done that. Ever since I met him, he's always been a camper. That was a warm little catch-up, though. That was nice. It's nice to see you. Yeah. Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a show about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey, founder of The Rebooting, and I'm joined this week by Troy Young, longtime media executive and investor. This week, Alex is off camping, I'm in Belgrade, and Troy has a cold. In addition to making my case for Belgrade as an underrated travel destination, Troy and I discuss something that's lurked in the background of many of our discussions over the months of doing this podcast. Can publishing work as a scaled business? I found over the years that, particularly Americans, assume that the only path for a business is scale. There's an unquestioned fealty to the nostrum that if you aren't growing, you're dying. And that's somewhat true. Stagnation does lead to atrophy. But I can't help but look at the current set of realities and come to any other conclusion that maybe the publishing industry will end up looking differently. The internet has been an unmitigated disaster for most publishing businesses, at least compared to the analog days. And this is going beyond publishing to the more lucrative forms of media. Just look at the struggles Hollywood is having as it adapts to the new economics of streaming. The weaknesses that we're seeing in the ad market, while abating somewhat, are in contrast to strong results from Google and Facebook. 
In the two big growth areas in advertising, streaming and retail media, those dollars will come from somewhere. And you can be sure that some of that will come from publishers' current ad businesses. What's more, digital advertising is a mature market now. It is no longer the case that marketers are overspending on analog media channels compared to digital. One estimate I saw is that two-thirds of ad spending is now digital. That Mary Meeker slide can now safely be put in a time capsule. And this is why I believe that we're seeing structural changes to the digital ad market, not just the cyclical speed bump. And when I look around, the most promising models tend to be narrower and smaller. Niche is now celebrated, and that's funny to me because niche was always used as a pejorative. It's like telling someone that they have a lifestyle business. The implication of both are that what you're doing is cute, but not very ambitious. Perhaps, but let's look at the scoreboard. The scaled models of the previous generation have nearly all failed. The New York Times is a juggernaut and an exception to nearly every norm. There will not be 10 New York Times, and I'm not even sure if there'll be three or four. The most promising models that I see tend to focus on elite audiences, audiences of business or political decision makers, lifestyle segments that lend themselves to commercial transactions, or front operations for other more lucrative businesses in completely different categories. The emphasis on direct audiences after a generation of chasing platform algorithms to rack up big comm score numbers and three second video views is by definition a smaller approach. That will necessitate what Troy might call a refactoring of organizations. These models require doing more with less. The layers of EVPs at Vice Media won't be repeated. Building mass newsrooms to pump out filler content of a series of embedded tweets for page views is already a blast from the past. Publishers will need to find leverage in their models by covering just as much ground with fewer resources. Think about newsletters and podcasts. These are typically built by one person or a couple of people. That provides leverage that simply doesn't exist within a larger enterprise. I hope you enjoy this conversation and please give us a hand by leaving us a rating and a review of the podcast on Apple or Spotify. I want to in particular thank Z Davis too, who wrote on Apple, a criminally underrated resource. Brian, Alex, and Troy, that's the correct order, have great chemistry and experience that comes out in their discussions. They are able to discuss current events in the media world with an eye towards the structural forces at play. As someone working in a smaller media company without someone to talk shop with, these guys provide a better parasocial relationship than LinkedIn. Oh my God, he's, he's going into LinkedIn. I just wish there were more ads. In all earnestness, please keep it up. Look, Z Davis too, I'm working on the ad front. We've got to see what we can do. i got to get Alex on board with reading an ad or two. Anyway, send me your feedback too at brian at therebooting.com. Enjoy the conversation. Let's get to the topic at hand. This is something I've been thinking about doing a newsletter about. Are you still publishing your newsletter? I don't see it a lot. What's going on? I've taken a bit of a summer break and I'm, I'm glad I have because I've been reflecting on kind of what I wanted to do and whether I like the sort of essay style that I have done for 70 issues. I'm thinking of breaking it up a little and I don't think that people really need a newsletter in the depths of summer anyway. I'll get back to it in the next week or two. I did one last week on like events and people, people love events. Anytime I've written about events and I've done like a trillion events in my career. It's like very popular. Anyway, I wrote about events because I'm sure you've noticed like a lot of media companies, B2B has always been mostly events as a monetization tool. And it seems like a lot more publishers are leaning on events, not as an incremental, but as a main part of their revenue portfolio. When you start to get up to like 20, 25% of your revenue or higher, that's not incremental. That's like a big chunk. And in some ways, I think it's like a testament to the weakness of the typical big drivers of 
media companies and publishers. Because as you pointed out when I brought it up, I guess last week, how are you going to scale a $100 million company with events being 40% of your revenue? And so it sort of got me thinking of something that I want to do this week. So maybe have some ideas since you're not publishing at all. I guess you can help me publish. Because I just keep going, Troy. It's a mark of a true professional. Whether people are reading or not, I'm publishing. Your newsletter is what drives your revenue. No, it's not. I don't do I don't do this for money. I do this. No, I do it for money. What am I saying? I, I wouldn't But I am a little worried, to be honest. I am a little worried that pulling myself out of it for a few weeks has created some inertia. Yeah. Because getting one out every week was, as I always lamented to you, was a bit of an effort. There's another thing, though. I've not been super inspired by the things that I'm like. I, I just haven't felt, oh my God, I got to write about this because I don't want to write about X and I don't want to write about the troubles at CNN. I'm trying to figure out where I go next with it, to be honest with you, and where I have something that I can uniquely contribute because there's so much reporting, particularly in media. I wrote this to you when we were talking about what we were going to talk about this week. I found it amusing that the little spat around the variety, Tanya Siegel's sort of counterpoint on the endless reporting on CNN, particularly from Puck and then the big uh, yeah. the big bomb from the Atlantic. At one point, John Kelly, who you know I think is a very, very smart guy, he had said that through Puck's reporting of CNN, they had elevated it to sort of popular culture or something, like the drama inside of CNN. They wrote something like 50 stories about At least. The turmoil and that variety piece. And, Tatiana and I always, Siegel, she actually counted up how many times Dylan wrote about CNN. I was like, yeah. And then, you know, when Adam for being connected to Zucker, and then there was a whole bunch of really weird anecdotes about accusations that were made about Jeff Zucker trying to raise money to buy CNN and then. His team dismissed these and said, we never said that. So there was all this. Yeah, no, I know. It was like reporting. detailed reporting with very specific names and stuff. And then it was like, never happened. Yeah, never happened. I'm like, wow, well, this is like, there are a lot of details. Right. There's a lot of bad things happening in the world or interesting things ranging from climate change to AI to nukes. This is what we have to spend time on, arguing endlessly about what's going on inside of a deteriorating news cable company. Right. So I want to do something different. And this is, so maybe you can help me figure out this thing, is entering into like a more with less era. We're seeing this like in publishing in particular, but I think it's it's going to happen in all forms of media is there are structural weaknesses to these models that aren't cyclical. It's not coming back in the same ways, I don't think. And when you look at the meta results, when you look at Google's results, first of all, it's kind of hilarious, not hilarious, but like they cut how many employees their stocks are like ripping. Meta is up 11%. At that scale, that's like amazing. Google is doing just fine. And they're like... Well, they're putting, up 11. Meta's up 11. The market is projected to be up six. So someone's getting hurt. And now they're using and Nobody AI. I talk to in publishing is anywhere near six. So clearly there's share shifts happening. Yeah, yeah the ATT and uh, the Apple stuff sort of hurt them for a little bit. And then now they're just, they're applying AI to ads. They're going to be able to like write the ads conjure up the image and stuff. Man, this is like rough for publishers. So you got digital ad weakness, probably structural, not cyclical, more competition. It's a mature industry. The data stuff, open programmatic is a disaster for most publishers at this point. Subscriptions, marginal for many categories. I just do not see how Condé Nast supports that cost base with $10 subscriptions to Vogue. 
Like I just don't see it. That yeah, happens. subscriptions are sort of antithetical to much of the lifestyle category because I'll read a Vanity Fair post, but it's too infrequent and not deep enough for me to consider subscribing. And I think it's the challenge is more profound in broader lifestyle categories like women's fashion or entertainment or home. Those categories, the content is widely available for free. So if you're going to charge someone for it, you're going to have to be extremely relevant, extremely deep, and demand a huge kind of portion of the mind share of the reader or be really necessary to drive subs. So what happened, and I did this so I saw it, is that you try to create a hybrid model between managing scale, keeping scale up, because that's where your bread's buttered, you got to keep the business going, and then trying to section off parts of the feed to a subscription proposition and then throw some other goodies into the bag. In many cases, the most important goodie was like, hey, and we'll give you a magazine. And yeah, I think it's tenuous, so you get a lot of churn, and it's really hard to folks and so it, it just represents a small part of the business. Yeah. Brian, I wanted to get your take on so one of the things that I think they consciously do at Puck and I think Semaphore tries to do it as well is really just kind of rush the show as a media strategy, which is we want to go so deep and on a particular company and period and conflict that we become kind of the voice in that area and that oh, yeah. the people involved become characters that the audience can get attached to. And as such, news becomes drama. I don't know, Chris I'm sure he's a fine person, whatever, but may not be, I don't know. But he becomes more than the guy that worked at CNN. He becomes a character in the, the storyline that Puck is creating. And so the one thing about digital publishing is that because it's so hard to distinguish your content, your voice, your feed, that you know, really, really dive bombing one particular story and owning that is a really useful strategy. Yeah, I mean, it's not totally new. It's not new. I think Daily Mail does it in their own way, right? But they, they yeah. do it in a different way against crime stories and stuff. Hal Raines, the old New York Times editor, had a great phrase for it. It's like, flood the zone. It's yeah. like, let's flood yeah, the right. zone. And there's particular stories, depending on what your purview is, is you've got to own it. Like in a newsroom, it's like, we have to own this. I used to say like, too, too many, not too, too few. If we write right. like too, too many stories on this and people are like, what the hell? Then, okay, can live with that. Don't like undercover certain things. And then the the second piece, which is something I remember Michael Wolf would always say to us, he was like, heroes and villains. He was like, that's what people want. They want heroes and they want villains. And so find the hero and find the villain. That's like a very Wolfian, I think, approach. But I think that is particularly in media coverage, it's very pronounced the heroes and villains part. And also Dylan was like a little bit of a protege of Michael Wolf. Yeah, he was that's what was going on. He was at Adweek. I don't think Meanwhile, Dylan and I overlap. people's lives are caught up in that. It just becomes a drama that really affects their prospects, their lives, their careers. Yeah, I don't think Semaphore does that as much. Do they? No, I think Ben likes a gotcha, though, for sure. He likes break the news and then tear down. Oh, yeah, he's a news hound. He's a news obsessive. He's a scoop machine guy. There's a lot of places that are that way. I think journalism overall has, and it's long had a obsession with scoops that is more internal and to the profession 
then Twitter made it so obvious. The embarrassing thing was like, you can't call this exclusive. We had this three minutes before. And it's like, oh my God, the PR person gave this to you. What are you doing? Don't do this. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't do this in public. Don't do this to yourself. Nobody cares for the most part. But I get it from a professional standpoint. I used to, on a very sort of inconsequential scale, I used to always overhear the reporters at Adweek who were trying to break the five finalists for the Pennzoil CRM review back when that was like the currency of it. It's like, we've got three out of the five finalists. And I'm like, okay, outside of the seven people who are up for this, like literally no one cares. Nobody cares. (laughs) But it would take banging the phones like nonstop to get that. And then AdAge would get it. And then it was like rush to match AdAge. And I was always sitting in my cubicle saying, shouldn't we just do something different rather than we try to like match AdAge? They already have it. It's like, good for you. You got the Pennzoil one. We'll try to get you next time when, I don't know, Pampers has an account up. Good times. I this think is why that I just, those pubs are struggling for relevance right now. Adweek just decapitated their leadership. They just got rid of their CEO and their chief content officer. Who I don't know either of them. It's funny. That was such a vibrant category. I remember how, th- remember how thick AdAge used to be when it was in print. We all loved reading it. Those pubs, they ought to be, you know, it's vertical B2B publishing. It's got to be something there. The entertainment-oriented publications like Variety and Hollywood Reporter have done much better than the ad-focused ones. Adweek has been treated off of different private equity firms. Several times. Take a crack at it. That's never good. They've they've had whiplash so much internally there that I think people are traumatized to some degree. And I was traumatized when my cubicle was shrunk. I didn't appreciate that at all. But that was many years ago. Water under the bridge. Maybe there's room for your alma mater to sort of soak up some of that space. There's sort of the view from middle management over at Digiday. It's almost yeah. intolerable to read. Ah, that's that's a good one. Yeah, I'll let them own that one. The view from is your franchise. I do that with only with your permission. Air Serbia, I took the view from Econ. It was bleak. Do you know what someone did? This woman behind me. Well, the, um, the thing is, is that like those Eastern European airlines, they don't do food very well. No, no some kind of goulash. Or no, I got a, like a barbecue chicken or something like that. It wasn't very good. I will say this. They have a very terrible hard product, generally. They lease their airplanes a lot. The quality of the hard product, the seat and stuff, it's not very good. But their soft product, the services and stuff are incredibly good. And I think it's because it's a good job for a lot of people working for the airline and stuff. And so I think that they have a superior soft product in many ways. That's a little view from econ. Anyway, this woman, she started playing sex in the city. I guess it was, depending on where you're coming from, but it was basically like in the middle of the night. The shades were still down. She was doing it on her iPad with sound on right behind That seems a little inconsiderate. I nearly became like an airline rage person. There's no excuse for that. I'm sure you said something to her, didn't you? I didn't. I was awakened and I took my eye mask off and I might have cursed a little bit, but I did the head up and looked over. They were a little older. And so I was like, geez, I can't be like cursing at old people. (laughs) I felt bad about it, basically. (laughs) I've seen you when you're irritated, so it wouldn't surprise me if you did, actually. Oh, whatever. Was your wife with you? (laughs) She was with me, but she was in business class. (laughs) How did that work? We book our travel separately and she booked it. And I was like, I'm not paying for the the business class. I'll be fine. Maybe I'll get the upgrade at the airport. It's cheaper. Premium economy is fine for me. I'm not making that up. It's fine for me. Straight econ. That's tragic. This is a sad story. It is sad. Sit with your wife. Spend the extra 500 bucks. I got to just sell more ads. I'm trying to figure out this thing about whether the future in, in many ways is 
how do you do more with less? And what that means for one, like how you build a new business, because this is something I talked about with Justin Smith. I didn't put it in my piece, but he was he was talking a lot about the sequencing of building Semaphore and how different it is building a publication with a big goal, but like that you have to sequence this very strategically because you just cannot go out and open up bureaus everywhere. And then the other one is how do you adapt old models, assuming that there is this era of doing more with less, but how do you adapt old models to that? Is that a question? Yeah, it's a question. <laughs> well, the sequencing one, where do you want to start? I'm trying to, trying to organize my thoughts here. The sequencing one is in the context of a news org where you aspire to report from different regions of the world is a big question. I'm assuming they prioritize the markets where you can actually make money. Sequencing, you have to sequence your costs with your revenue, right? So you're going to start in the U.S.? If you don't make it in the U.S., you get no shot at the rest of the world. It's the right. biggest market. Justin said like 60% of all of like global news revenue is in the United States. What was the other question, which is after sequencing, it was... Well, I guess my, my point was, is like, how do you adapt old models to a more with less model? And then we'll get to like starting new models. I just believe that like you stay as lean as possible, as long as possible. Whereas before, I think starting new brands, you wanted to like make a big impact and never have a launch party. Launch parties are dumb. And now you just have to do far more with far fewer resources. Yeah, it seems to me that the way you were doing it, although you seem allergic to having a bigger company, but that you <laughs> it's not true. build a base and just kind of quietly start saying things that matter. And doing it in a low-cost distribution channel like email. And then the one thing will build on the other. That's a fine way to build a self-financed business. I don't think it satisfies capital, as you and I have discussed. You want to probably be more aggressive than that in terms of taking on additional verticals or growing revenue through a sales organization or putting more money into events and stuff. It's all kind of irrelevant, meaning you can sequence it how you want. You can either make it capital-intensive or capital-light. As long as you're fundamentally on a path where there's a need for what you're making, an opportunity to do it better than someone else, an appetite from that set of consumers to engage with you and or pay you. The funny thing about media is people will always keep trying new variations on the Venn diagram where it's, you know, this, but it's this. It's this and it's this. It's insights from the world of media and advertising written in a way that is easier to read or formal or informal or whatever. The great thing about media is it just keeps going and it's made afresh every day. It seems to me that what technology does is it changes the way you enter a market, which is you can start at any time and you can kind of organically grow your position. Did Semaphore do that? I think there where you aspire to the initial sort of bombastic declaration that they would serve, I don't know, 200 million people globally that want that kind of content was just a kind of throwaway. But if you want to have a real newsroom there, I think it's a little different. You need to take a, a material amount of capital. Those guys are executing really well, I think. The question will be, is the fuse long enough to build a decent business? And is the business at the end of it going to be worth what capital expects it to be? And you know, you just kind of break it down. For me, if you get the Semaphore newsletter, do you like it? Do you read it every day? Does it become an irreplaceable part of your diet? Does it take time away from FT, from Wall Street Journal? 
What's interesting there is I would say that media companies have been way less effective at innovating that media type. So I love the FT, but FT doesn't have a good email product. Why doesn't it have a good email product? Is it because of its subscription? Is it because they don't want to do it? Because people don't think it's important? The Times has good email products, I would argue. Yeah. The Journal doesn't. They have so much resources that it's like the exception to everything. Yeah. Are you trying to figure out what the next formula is? Sort of. I'm trying to figure out what are the points of like leverage in whatever is coming next. There's this decoupling going like the ad business was never great for most digital publishers before. And it's never going to even get as good as it was when people thought it was bad, it seems to me. And a lot of the levers of the business are not only like not working great now, it seems like it's structural, not cyclical in most cases. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the points of leverage are to build a scaled media company. Like you talk about what capital wants. I don't think capital should be anywhere near most of these, particularly publishing companies, in that it's sort of a back to the future kind of situation where we're going to have like tons of small publishers, sure, because you you sort of dismissively say it, but like when people are like, oh, you're building a lifestyle business, which is totally like a backhanded like slap. But tell me where the successes are. Who is going to try to build like what, the new vice? Are you stunned? I love that pause. <laughs> Who's going to try to build the, the new vice? First, someone's going to try to resuscitate the old vice. Okay. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. All I know is that it's kind of where you started, right? It's like advertising has become a scientific, technical pursuit requiring now not just huge amounts of data, but tons of technical expertise and scale. I can't quite figure out why Snap can't keep up other than because it's either the surface area of the experiences they deliver are not good for advertising or they don't have the sophisticated technology to insert it in a way that works for people. But all I've ever seen is that performant advertising driven by retail data sets or by the scale of social media or by Google or if you have material amounts of sort of time on a timeline because you're YouTube or some other video-driven platform, that's all kind of there is, then the rest of the folks just do what we've always done, which is just fight for, like, do what Complex did this week in that long piece that your friend at Adweek wrote about their partnership with Sprite or something. Like, yeah, they're, they're bringing back the microsite. I think that's a business. I just don't think it's a good business. We've really explored these themes on this podcast a few times and haven't really come to anything that's kind of conclusive. We'll keep at it, though. <laughs> All right. Is there anyone that you, out there that you think has a good model for what comes next? The problem I have with it is that there's the thing you make and the thing that supports the thing you make. So the thing you make is the attention of the media consumer. And the thing that supports it is either you're providing deep relevance to someone or associative value through a partnership. And those are great if you have the right brand and the right audience, but it's a small, smaller business. You either have something that's incredibly necessary, and as a result, people pay for it. I like businesses like that. I can't think of any that are massive outside of the New York Times, and we should just set this aside, but it's sort of like the question of what you would do if you were in. I like the what would you do if, if you were the publisher of WAPO. And then you have people that try to monetize through commercial activity, which is any publisher that has material affiliate revenue or publishers that are entirely focused on it, like a nerd wallet or even Forbes advisor or companies like that. 
those are really good businesses. Yeah. Or then you have a really unique business like Chris Kimball at Milk Street, which is a, a food-focused media company, but the store is what makes it work. And to make that store work, it's taken years of effort to build and source your own products and learn how to sell them. That's as much about being a kind of merchant as it is being a, a media publisher. Yeah, but that's so, it's a small you know, business, or at best, the media is a small part of what is, in essence, a front for a commerce business. Yeah. What surprises me, though, when I kind of pull back on all of it is still, at the end of the day, I read a lot of content from established media brands. They're still a big part of my life. There's probably a line you can draw. This is where this gets interesting. And you wrote about this this week in your newsletter, Brian, which is that, and I'd love to learn more because I didn't listen to the podcast, but we're spending more on entertainment broadly as consumers and actors are getting less and the people that make the shows are getting less. The media companies that make the content are struggling. Just to just take an isolated example, I probably read more stories now from Vanity Fair than I read when they published a magazine. I would get the magazine monthly and I would read a couple stories in it. I'm sure I read more than that from Vanity Fair now. So they get more of my attention, but the business is worse. Yeah, well, attention on a phone is not equal to attention in a magazine 10 years ago. Okay, fair enough. But it's analogous to the thing, the first question, which is, what did you learn about, who was the gentleman you had on the podcast? Andrew Rosen? Yeah, Andrew was talking about the sort of curse of the streamers. Yeah. Like it's just a bad business model. Yeah, it's a bad business model. So it's kind of the same thing. We're getting more as consumers. I'm getting more news, more point of view, more lifestyle content that I could ever imagine. But it's a harder time to be a publisher. Now, it's been spread across more people or somebody else is just pulling out all the profits, which is pro- both are probably true. Yeah. I think his bigger point was that it was this move from a wholesale model to a retail model and that the people running these businesses were trained, they are good at, they are incentivized to run wholesale businesses and that they are probably the wrong people to run retail businesses. There's much more to it than that. Meaning running a wholesale business meant you could window content. You knew how to kind of get the most out of all your distribution relationships. You didn't have the headache of dealing with millions of consumers and standing up platforms that dealt with them and all that stuff. Is that the point? Yeah. And like the data. There was a lot of unearned advantages that we've talked about in this podcast that a lot of media companies had. The data just shows that these were not completely earned. There's a reason that like Vanity Fair was able to make more money, even though it probably had less attention when it was just a magazine, because the measurements sucked. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, the measurements sucked. It was an oligopoly. You were one of four companies that had material budget allocations from a group of advertisers. Yeah, there was no sort of performance imperative. You had incredible power on the supply side with celebrities and stuff because you were one of a few magazines that could move culture. I mean, all those things. If there's one thing in my mind at the end of this conversation, it's like, where can you draw a circle around a group of people and have a meaningful relationship with them? And if you can't do that, you don't have a media business and there's just fewer of them. And so if you wanted that circle to be really big, you got to do it in a category that's big. So you probably have to do it in news. And we know what that looks like. That's when it gets difficult. And so now what you're about to see is a bunch more reporting on the messenger, which is trying to do that in a kind of retrograde way, right? Yeah. By saying, well, we'll just build up a big newsroom and get lots of page views and hire a bunch of SEO experts. 
there's a broadly a positioning, although I guess it's center right, just the facts, veggies and dessert together, kind of like entertainment news or salacious stuff with all other types of news. And we'll see. We'll see if that's enough anymore, if that means that they can take volume from New York Post. I don't know. I've read about this. I don't know if I'm like wrong, but it, it seems like even trying to build big models is like, why even try? I put it as like the end of the ambition to some degree, but it doesn't seem like there's even a clear path to how this could work. I think that there's not going to be fewer media companies or publishers. I think there's going to be a lot more. I just think they're going to be smaller. They're smaller businesses, and that's why you got to be capital efficient. So maybe like the capital allocators could go allocate capital to more SaaS businesses. I don't know. And then you come back to your where the conversation started, which is in the other piece you wrote on the pivot to events. Again, like they're going to saturate. Really, a lot of what you call events are really about accessorizing ad packages. I pushed hard on our events business at Hearst, and what I really wanted, we were very good at the kind of accessorizing events. Like, we're going to do an issue, Women in Hollywood for L. We'll do the event, we'll get the stars to come out. The event will be 150 people in Los Angeles. Don Perignon and a couple of fashion brands will sponsor it. We'll run pages, blah, blah, blah. We'll create the media value around it and there'll be the event. And it was a great way to get people into the book and to drive ad revenue. The events that we weren't able to do or that were a big leap would be any event where the consumer paid for something. Mm. That's where it gets really difficult. And that on, so in some ways is where Complex's success was quite remarkable, where ComplexCon had a big consumer-facing event. And it had transactions inside because it was essentially a marketplace, had entertainment, had conversations, talk, whatever. It was a real achievement by Rich and the team. There are fewer of those and those are harder to do. But the other events that you're talking about are really just sort of, there's a straight line between getting a list of people that downloaded a white paper and having dinner. It's like the same thing. There's a lot of different types of events. I mean, they're on the B2B side. Washington is like a very vibrant, their type of events. You know, they're small, but also large, but they, a lot of them are small influencer events. I think events are fine, and I think that they're a great way to prove that your audience is, is more than an audience and that they'll turn out for it. And it's still an area, at least in business, that people will pay for, but it doesn't scale, and it's a problem for that. If you're going to scale, I was hoping like you could give me a roadmap to how you actually build a scaled media company now. I will, but you have to pay me. All right, should we leave it there? I thought this was a funny idea. So people like my wife love the idea of having chickens, like chickens in the yard, okay? And I have no interest in having chickens because if we get chickens, like someone's got to look after the chickens and then the dog will try to eat the chickens and then someone has to clean up, like feed the chickens and nobody wants to do any of that. Yeah, they're filthy animals. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, it's pretty romantic to stroll out of the house in the morning and grab the eggs. People like that idea. And it's fun. We got chickens. That's cool. So a friend of mine on Shelter Island said they had chickens. And I'm like, what do you mean you got chickens? What are you going to do with the chickens at the end of the summertime? And she was like, oh, they just come and get them. And I said, well, where did you get the coop and like the feed and all that stuff? And she's like, oh, they just brought it all. So it turns out that there's a service called rentthechicken.com. It's sort of like Uber for chickens. Or maybe that's a bad example. You get the idea. And you just go to rentthechicken.com and you say, I want some ready for farm fresh eggs. I'm in Long Island. Come and bring me the kit. They bring you the coop and the feed and the chickens. And you pay them like a thousand bucks. 
and you keep the chickens for the summer, and at the end of the summer, they come get the chickens. Wow. What Are you, you think thinking about? about doing this? The problem is my dog would go berserk, but I think it would solve the problem. That, yeah, before you, know, you build a coop, you should probably rent a chicken first. <laughs> See how you like it. Can't hurt. Well, they bring you the coop. Well, that's what I mean. If you were going to like go to the trouble of building a coop and then getting the chickens and whatnot, you'd be very committed to the chicken lifestyle. So, Did you see that video of that guy who, did we talk about this, who decided to make a chicken sandwich from scratch? I thought that was awesome. He did the whole thing. He didn't seem very excited about how it tasted at the end. No, no, but that, I think that was part of it. Yeah, it's disappointing. All right, I got to go. I got to eat dinner. It's really late here. All right. Enjoy your time in Belgrade. Are you happy to be there, Brian? You seem happy. Yeah, I like it here. Meanwhile, Brian, today we didn't want to talk about Elon. I do now think I've gone from sort of thinking that one man's unstoppable energy can move the world to just like, it's never going to work. <laughs> oh, it's never going to work. And Alex is not here for this. Save it for next week. It would be good. <laughs> I liked it when you called it Elon derangement syndrome. That was funny. <laughs> <laughs>